Hello, everybody. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I'll be your host today as we explore the winding and sometimes treacherous paths that make up Delmarva. Now, just before I start this case and providing more information, you may wonder why I say my name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson at the beginning of most episodes. And the reason why is my middle name is Francis. There are a lot of R's in my family. Um, I grew up with my father as Ronald, my brother as Ronald, my sister as Roxana, and actually my husband, kids, and I are all named, you know, beginning with an R. So a lot of my family and friends would call me Franny. And actually the person we'll be discussing or even the people that we'll be discussing today would have known me as Franny. If you are new to this podcast, I would like to welcome you. And if you're a previous listener, welcome back. I do hope everybody can indulge me a little bit more today as I'm probably going to go back into my memory a little bit more and provide some some stories actually from my life and you know just explaining about the primary person we'll be talking about today, how I knew her. While, of course, I'll still refer to some source material, just the introduction and background will be a lot of you know, my memories of Lisa Friedel. If you are a returning listener, I'm sure you may have heard me mention that I've known quite a few people that have been murdered, which... I didn't actually realize until I started this podcast um, going through this episode today and actually even through previous episodes has really helped me come to understand why following true crime and tragedies means something to me, how it's in a lot of ways helped work as a therapy of sorts as I work through some feelings and emotions that I blocked off at the beginning. And I'll explain a little bit more of that as we go through. Um, also, it will be a two-part episode. I was working on trying to get it into one, but you know, I, I just finally got to a point where I thought there's too much information as well as follow-up for me to try to cram it all into one episode. While I have mentioned, of course, the people that I know that have been murdered, this is the one case where I actually had more of a relationship or friendship with the person who was the murderer as well. Granted, the relationship or friendship that we had was about 10 years before these events happened, and we had been small children. And sometimes when I think of this case, even though I've seen pictures of her as a teenager, you know, while she was going through this trial, I still see her as the little girl that I was playing with. You know, the same amount of time has passed for her as for me. And even though I'm an adult, and actually on the date that this will be released, it will be my birthday. Um, you know, those years pass, but somehow I still see her as 
the little girl playing outside with me. So it's kind of difficult reconciling the two sides. Before we do get started, I do want to do what some people call as housekeeping. And part of it is a disclaimer that I want to give just to kind of protect myself as well. Um, so I am in no way a legal or forensics expert. I've gleaned all of the research, except those that are my personal anecdotes from newspapers and journalism sources that covered this case. To the best of my knowledge, everything is true and accurate for this particular case. Much of the information came from newspapers.com, with a majority of that coming from their uploads from the Star Democrat and Baltimore Sun. As this podcast deals with sensitive topics such as crime, each episode may contain discussion of accidents, death, violence, and other things that people may find triggering. Now, I did mention newspapers.com, and without having that, I would not have been able to do this episode as a lot of information was not openly available just through a general search. So unfortunately, there are many things that I will link as my sources that you won't actually be able to get in there and view unless you have a newspapers.com subscription. Um, even though occasionally I, I know I've clicked on some things prior to getting the subscription where you know it did give me at least a picture of it. So you might be able to view some things, but trust me, it's usually very, very blurry at that point. What I'll do when I link my sources is I will put the URL that was specific to the newspapers.com search, but then I'll also put the name of the publication, publication and the date after that. Um, this is probably the most extensive number of sources that I've had before um, than what I've had before, I'm sorry. So... I apologize, it will seem quite long, but using that resource, um, a lot of times they just link you to individual pages. So each page will have like its own URL. I did also just mention for the first time last week that I have opened or I do have linked my PayPal account. If anyone does want to make any donation towards either subscription services that I need to use or other resources that I may need, such as some court documents, or if I do get to a point where I'd ever file a Freedom of Information Act request, there may sometimes be fees related to those, as well as you know maybe resources such as books. Um, I do know other podcasters do rely on those other sources, but you know I don't want to also use sources that most people would not be able to access without um, using a paid site. So I am trying to limit those, but unfortunately, sometimes you know, it does become necessary to look at other sources rather than just a general search where you know, all the information pops up. So with all of this being said, let's get into Lisa Friedel's story. And actually saying that right there, I usually try to focus on the victims, but I guess I find myself gravitating towards 
the thoughts and emotions and what Lisa was going through just because I knew her better. I am going to do my best to stay as neutral as possible. And in some of the areas where I do have a pretty pretty much a strong opinion, I do think those are opinions that I would hold whether or not the um, the alleged murderer was someone that I knew or not. So there are moments that we will always remember. In my life, some of those memories have been when I got the call from my mom saying that my sister had been taken to the hospital and by the tone of her voice, knowing that it wasn't going to be good. Or when she called to tell me that my cousin, a police officer, had been shot, that some people had fired shots in a McDonald's parking lot. And while he was trying to apprehend the person, he was shot and just me asking very short questions and then saying I would get to the hospital. She told me that they were getting ready to fly him to another facility so I wouldn't make it there in time. But when the phone rang a short time later, I believe it was probably around five, maybe 10 minutes at the most, I knew what my mother was calling back about. Then there was the day that I pulled into my yard after school. It was my senior year and it started out just like any other day. And I think we hear quite a bit of that here in the true crime community that it started out as any other day would. But that day when I got home, there was something different. My mother was standing on the steps to the house holding the screen door open. She normally didn't do that, but on a rare occasion, she might stand out there before I got to the steps because she wanted me to run an errand and just didn't want me to get too comfortable inside before she caught me. Now, this was a time before cell phones, so it's not like she could have just called me to run an errand. So for just a split second, I thought that's what she wanted me to do. But I looked at her just grasping her hands kind of swaying back and forth. And I think this was probably the first time I understood what the phrase wringing someone's hands meant. She looked upset and I thought maybe something had happened to a family member or a loved one. So I was a little bit hesitant to kind of proceed. And as I took a couple more steps hesitantly towards the door, my mom, who, if you can picture this, was about four foot eleven with short salt and pepper hair, big round glasses, just kind of bouncing back and forth, not or looking like she didn't know what to do or how to say something. Then, just very quickly, kind of in all one sentence, if you can envision it without punctuation, she just blurted out, There was a girl in Maryland that killed her mother and stepfather, and it was Lisa. It was almost like she thought if she got it out quickly, it wouldn't hurt as much or maybe it wouldn't make it quite as real as it was. And there was only one Lisa that I knew that she could be talking about. I asked her, did we know why? And my mother answered that she had wanted to party. Lisa was a little girl that my mother had babysat for. 
she was one year younger than I was. And while my mom has since passed, I have to really say I can't remember how long she had babysat Lisa. She just seems to have been there from my earliest memories. And, you know, I remember playing with her. My family, we lived in a more rural area and my school class was very small. So there really weren't many friends that I had that lived in my area that I could see easily. So I don't know if Lisa at the time felt the same way, but I really looked at her as a best friend as I did spend more time with her than I did with any other child that was approximately my age. So I might just be saying that, remembering back as a child, that she was my only, um, you know, kind of, I guess you would say playmate that I would see often as compared to anybody that I went to school with or anybody that possibly could have lived down the road. So that meant really every day after school, even though it wasn't for an extremely long period of time, for in-service days or administration days, snow days, and even the summer, we spent that time together. At the age that I was, it felt like my mother had been babysitting her forever. But when I was around six or seven, things changed. And, you know, I don't really remember a lot of specific events with her. There was more of that you know, general play, because we were two little girls in a time before video game consoles everywhere, before handheld electronics that kept us glued to a screen. And I think even before, the, you know, we had cable television in my area, it might have been in some of the town proper, but out in the, the more rural area that I lived at, there wasn't, I don't think, cable out there at that time. And when my sons are walking around the house saying that they're bored or there's nothing to do, I sometimes look back at my childhood and think, how did I make it through without, you know, having something to do? But we did have something to do. We used our imagination. We talked to each other. We read books. You know, we did things that where we weren't just always looking at a screen. I'm going to try to stay away from any more references that say exactly how old I am here. But we just had to entertain ourselves. And in retrospect, I think we got to use our imaginations a little bit more. And we communicated face-to-face -face more at that time. So, you know, sometimes I still wish things could go back and be that way. Even though when we find out what necessarily happened here, then, you know, maybe those weren't quite the days that we want to go back to. Some of the things I do remember, I guess, the first thing is our picnic table. We had a picnic table outside and it served pretty much as anything that we needed it to do. It could be our house if we wanted it to be. It could be our storefront when we were selling something. Um, it could be our oven as we baked pies, even though the pies that we made were pretty much just globs of mud that were flattened out, and they looked way more like hamburgers than pies. 
but we would also use that same mud to make hamburgers, which essentially just looked like the pies or vice versa here. You know, we used it as a stovetop and just that picnic table kind of served as an all-purpose place and served our imagination very well. Um, we had a swing set we would play on or just run around outside. And I also kind of feel for my mom sometimes because she would have to clean us up after, you know, we'd been outside playing in mud. You know, even if it hadn't rained, we had a hose that we could make our own mud to build things. Occasionally we would think about times like when we got married, when we had a kid, you know, just all of those things that you would expect young children to do. But there were two very specific times that I remember with her, you know, not just the general things that we did. And one is a little funny. And I know we were inside, so I'm not sure if it was winter where it got dark earlier or if it was raining. I just knew and I can remember being close to the window and it was not really bright outside. So we were playing a game indoors then and we were playing a rhyming game where one of us would come up with a word and we would go back and forth coming up with words that rhymed and if you didn't come up with one you lost. So while I may not remember the exact order of the words, I think you'll get the idea. Lisa chose first and yes, yeah, she chose duck. You can probably see where this is going. Then she said another, or I said a word, she said a word, then it came back to me. And I'm going through the alphabet in my head and I'm just kind of saying things out loud while I'm going through. And you know which word I probably came across. And I just heard my parents gasp. And I had no idea what they were so upset about. But I quickly learned and kind of felt like Ralphie the first time I saw a Christmas story. And he was trying to change a tire with his father. If you've never seen the movie, it's worth it to see it. The other time, though, was more serious. See, my dad, he had a house that had burnt down with, I believe, seven of nine children inside the house. Now, this was before I was born, and I'm the youngest out of ten. So they, this had already happened, and they were out of the house before I was probably even thought of. But you know, having that happen, it can leave someone being super vigilant about, you know, fire, smoke. And we also lived in a pretty small house and there were most likely at least four other siblings still in the house, possibly five. Um, when, you know, Lisa was there at times and my sister, we may have shared a room, but she was older and she was working a night shift. So we were actually playing in my brother's room, which was not unusual just given, you know, the amount of space that we had. And we came across a book of matches. I didn't think anything would happen, that they would just be put back. But then she struck a match, which completely shocked me. Because that's one of the things you teach children is not to play with matches. And before... I knew it, you know, I stood up and I was like, I'm going to tell. So yes, I was going to be a little tattletale there. 
and I was wearing a dress. So when she pulled on my skirt, you know, it was all one piece. So it just kind of pulled me down. And all of a sudden the door opens up and it's my dad and he wants to know what's going on. And I could tell he was scared. And just while I was writing this, I realized something that I'd always thought about. He had gotten to that door really, really quickly. And I wondered if just the little bit of smoke that came off the match could have brought him there that quickly. Because even though she struck it, it really didn't take. It was just like a whiff of smoke. But come to think of it, the doors were sliding doors and there were slats in them. So he probably heard us. He probably heard, you know, me saying we shouldn't do this and her asking me not to tell. So those are really the two main, you know, memories when we, when I talk about specifics and Lisa. So Lisa's parents were divorced. And as far as the parents, I knew them about as well as any five or six-year-old girl would know the parents of, you know, the girl that her mother babysat for. You know, it was pretty much a like a passing glance or, you know, wave, something like that. Didn't ever really talk to them at my age. But both of them, I believe, worked at the DuPont plant. I'm 100% sure about the mother. I'm almost sure about the father. But DuPont, you know, they were around for ages. Um, we were known, my town, as the nylon capital of the world. That's kind of our claim um, to fame, I guess you would say. And it was at the time, one of the, if not the biggest employer in Seaford. And, you know, eventually Lisa's mother did get remarried to someone else. And her new husband was also someone who worked at the DuPont plant, but they would be moving to Maryland. So, you know, even though the plant was only about a four or five minute drive to my parents' house, there would be things such as schooling since she might not get on the bus in Delaware or it would be difficult for her to, you know, be able to go to school in Delaware if she was living in Maryland. So that's when, you know, my mother stopped babysitting, you know, just kind of out of logistics of where they would be. Lisa did have two older sisters. Um, I was going to use their names, but... I've decided against it, and that's kind of the quandary you're in if you're doing a story about someone you know. you There can sometimes be memories or feelings and emotions that are a little more private, and I don't want to encroach on their privacy just because, you know, my mother knew her mother way back when. So I am really trying to work a balancing act where I'm not you know, overstepping in what I discuss because going forward, except for the few odd memories or observations, the information that I get will be coming from, you know, journalism sources. At the time, I did not follow any of the newspaper or news reports regarding this case. I don't even think it was like a conscious effort to do so. It just kind of happened. I shut myself off and didn't want to think about it or hear about it. It was what it was. It couldn't be undone. And that was that. And 
you know, my mom would say that I was emotionless, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, now I'm like the complete opposite. Now that I have kids, I, I do cry at commercials and, you know, there are some things I can't watch, um, on TV or YouTube or anywhere because it's just very, very difficult to listen to. But at that time I did just kind of shut off any thought about what had happened even though not too long after this, things would happen again that really brought the real world back and just like shoved it right back into my face saying, look, this can happen again. But that's for another day. But here, you know, I will say I just knew a very few pieces of information as my mother relayed them to me since I was now at college. And again, before a lot of things like internet and definitely no social media, it's not like I could just go to the corner store and pick up a newspaper from my area. So I know I've mentioned um, Lisa's mother. Um, her name was Laura. I can't quite recall if I've said that. Her stepfather's name was Larry. And the last name was Kajawa. Now, I've also heard it with the W pronounced kind of as a V like Kujaba. Um, but I'm going to, going to say Laura and Larry for most cases. And also just as, you know, I was working on this and knowing when I was going to upload it, it is uploading on my birthday, but it, August 9th would have been Laura's birthday as well. Um, just kind of a quick note. Some articles actually had it listed as August 6th as well, but the actual grave marker, gravestone itself says August 9th. So I'm definitely going with that as the date. And in another note about Larry, um, he had also worked with the Maryland and Delaware National Guards for about 22 years. And he and Laura had actually started at the DuPont plant in the same year, 1966. So it was about 28 years by the time these events happened. Also, if you do go to look up information on this case, you might see the town listed as Preston that they lived in or as Harmony. Um, Harmony was kind of like this little unincorporated part of the town. So like if you go to do Google Maps sometimes and you um, type in Harmony, it might bring up an address that states it's Preston. So, you know, it's really part of Preston in some ways, but it's its own little sub area, I guess you would say. So that leaves us now to start going over the events that happened on a spring day in 1994. And we'll find out, was my mom right in saying that Lisa just wanted to party? Well, we will find she did that for at least a little while. On Thursday, March 31st, the Maryland State Police responded to a call from Larry's mother, Anna. Now, as stated before, they both worked at the same place for years, and they were known to be very reliable employees, yet they had not shown up the previous day, March 30th, or March 31st, and they had not reached out to anybody to call out. So, knowing that this was not normal behavior, a supervisor at DuPont reached out to Larry's mother, Anna. An officer did respond to the request to check the house, and 
looking around, there were some things that the officer found concerning. First, by looking through the window, she could see that um, Laura's purse was still there. And that made them want to believe that Laura was still at the house. Um, now, personally, today, I don't carry a purse. Three years ago, I carried like everything you can imagine in two tote bags. I mean, I went to a baby shower once and they asked, if it, it was like some game and it said, do you have a notebook or a piece of paper in your purse? And I like drew out this whole big legal pad. So I like had everything with me, but I don't do that anymore. So to me, that's not a, a major thing, but at the same time, looking at the time frame they were in, I think most women did still cover their purse or did still carry their purses. And I'm sure many do um, today. I just, I don't like to put like a generalization on because it, in some cases, if someone goes jogging and stuff like that, they may not take their whole purse. So no one had answered the phone. They weren't coming to the door. And there's always the thought that some type of accident could have taken place inside, such as you know, something breaking or being damaged on you know, something involving gas that could have been leaking into the house with nobody knowing it. I know sometimes that can be one of the biggest thoughts if something happens to someone, but that was not the case. Anna did have a key to the home, which she had provided to the officer. So the officer did go in and when that officer looked around, she found Laura and Larry deceased in their bed. Each one of them had been shot and it was described as being at point blank range. Now, to my thinking about being on that scene, it would almost seem surreal to me. You know, they came in and the TV was still on and still going through different articles Sometimes there was disagreement on whether or not they had fallen asleep watching TV and Lisa came into the room or if they were still up watching it and she came into the room. I'm sure the police had been told that there was a minor who had lived in the home. Um, also, the family had a 1992 dark blue Ford Bronco that was not there anymore. There was not much information reported as to whether or not the police saw Lisa as a potential suspect or as a potential victim early on in the case. But, you know, I think that both sides really needed to be looked at because unless you find evidence supporting one or the other side, you don't want to close the door on all of your options. And... As with many places, I think that a double murder is pretty big news. But this was especially so in the 1990s and in Delmarva. It was more than big news. Now, the state police in Maryland did assist the local police. A lot of times, um, even where I live, if there's a crime that happens and the police department doesn't have a ton of resources then they may call in extra assistance and things did move pretty quickly. Police had interviewed Lisa's boyfriend's mother 
at that time, and she had indicated that he had left on March 30th, had returned on March 31st driving a blue Ford Bronco with Lisa in the vehicle. The boyfriend's name was not given, but there is a juvenile male that will be mentioned later. It was never explicitly stated whether or not he was her boyfriend, but they do spend a lot of time together um, from, you know, the actions and where the police found them, things like that. Um, we can see that they were pretty close. Now, looking back at what my mother said near the beginning, she said that they had wanted to party. And the police did find that she had gone shopping and bought some food, groceries, and, you know, going back to when checks were used pretty frequently to pay for groceries, Lisa had used her mother's checkbook. And in the memo line of the check, she had written the word party. So I will have to say that probably did not help her case any way you look at it. She was tracked down to an Econo Lodge in Ocean City. The Bronco had been spotted there, so pretty quickly the police knew where she was. She was arrested with four others. However, later it was found that three of them, three of the people she was arrested with did not know about what had happened before she picked them up that day. So there were no mentions of them being charged, but we will go back to the one person um, who was charged, who was a juvenile male at the time, 16 years old. Now, like I said earlier, I'm trying to remain as impartial as I can while reviewing the facts of this case. And with some of the observations I'm going to be making over the next few minutes, I do believe I would be you know, thinking the same way now, whether or not it was someone that I knew involved. Because a lot of things, at least I think, were questionable about the way um, a minor was spoken to or spoken with after an arrest. So by no means am I saying that you know, it affects her guilt or innocence, but it is looking at it from protecting a person's rights. And I am a big believer in everybody should have their civil rights and make sure that they know their Miranda rights and be treated properly with the due process and all of the rights that are allowed to them per the Constitution, per state guidelines to make sure, again, that everybody's rights are recognized because when one person's rights aren't recognized, it's just a downhill spiral until another person's rights are taken away. So going through what happened um, after Lisa was arrested is really, really surprising. Now, just as a reminder, she was 16 years old. And she signed away her Miranda rights. And she did agree to answer questions without a guardian. And it was stated that Lisa's grandmother had given permission 
for her to speak to the detectives without the guardian. But there are two major points here. One is that it was her step-grandmother. It was Larry's mother, one of the victim's mothers, that gave permission. Also, her father did live in Delaware. And while, yes, it was in a different state, and while Lisa had been arrested in a different part, even of that state, because Harmony slash Preston is a little bit of a distance to Ocean City from where her father lived, you know, at least thinking they still lived in the same house or general vicinity from when I had last been there when mom had stopped by, it would not still have been a major, major undertaking to drive that distance if he had needed to sign something. And given the gravity of the circumstances, I'm pretty sure he would have driven, no matter what the distance, to make sure his daughter's rights were protected. So to reiterate, first it was her step-grandmother whose son had been a victim of the crime who said she could speak to police, as well as her father, who is her next, who should be next in line as her guardian, was available. So that just seems very iffy to me. But just to kind of cut to the chase, she did speak with police. And later on, all of the comments, statements that she made during that interview were allowed um, as part of the record, which, you know, would influence the way the defense approached her particular defense during the you know, the upcoming trial or potential trial. But I did find that surprising as well that the police and even the state's attorney, um, a Christian Jensen, didn't, you know, try to make sure all of the, you know, I's were dotted, T's were crossed, because when dealing with any statements that could be given by anybody, you want to make sure that there's no possibility that it could be thrown out in court. And I think that was taking a pretty big chance because, you know, one judge may look at it as being appropriate that Anna, Larry's mother, was an appropriate substitute to give permission, whereas another may say, no, she had an available parent who should have been the next in line to decide whether or not she could speak to the police officers. It would be very easy for that judge to look at it as she's 16. She is not supposed to drink alcohol. She can't vote. She can't even get her ears pierced or get a tattoo without parental permission. But they're allowing a relative, especially a relative of one of the victims, say it's okay for her to talk. So... I'm not going to harp on this too much longer, but those were just, you know, it's an observation I made that I'm thinking if this were to happen today, I don't think it would be, you know, really allowed. Then again, um, during um, one article, it mentions that while she was with the police, she had a carton of cigarettes. Again, she's 16. So, you know, I guess that's either here nor there. So... Lisa was interviewed by an officer named Bollinger. And when he first began interviewing her, he let her speak. And 
as we come to find out later, what she said when he was first interviewing her was a little bit of a farce. Um, what she said is, you know, acting like she didn't know what had happened was that she and her mother had had a fight on the night of March 29th. And after that, both Laura and Larry had left the house and they had not returned for a couple of hours. So at one point, Lisa had become concerned and took the Bronco to go look for them. When she couldn't find them, she decided that she would go over to her boyfriend's house, which she did, and she then spent the night. She also had skipped school the following day, which actually was not out of the norm for her looking through um, you know, what some other people had said, as well as a letter that was found later that kind of insinuated from the description that she may have been skipping school for quite a long time. Also, her boyfriend um, skipped school on March 30th as well. And this, you know, kind of supports the fact that his mother hadn't seen him since the 30th or on the 30th um, either. So, so she had been to Ocean City. She went to shop um, for groceries in Easton and then went back to Ocean City. And, you know, while saying all of this and probably not realizing that it makes no sense that if you're concerned about your mother and stepfather that you will leave the county with one of their vehicles and use their checkbook to buy groceries while you're also spending the night with your boyfriend, you know, there's kind of a lot to question there. Um, she did say she had wanted to contact her parents, that she had tried, and Bollinger let her call her parents when she said she had wanted to. Um, he let her dial the number, and when he asked if she had gotten an answer, she said no, and at that point, Bollinger testified um, that he had told her that she wouldn't get an answer. He also let her know that he had been at her house you know, for most of the prior night. And at this point, he stated that her, quote, demeanor changed. So Lisa asked in something that will come up later in the case. Um, Bollinger did insinuate that he could help her. And Lisa asked in what way. And it sounds like Bollinger you know, maybe wanted to be aloof or just a little, um, I guess you would say not direct or ambivalent um, in that scenario where he just said he needed the truth. And at this point, Lisa, well, she said, quote, what do you want me to say? I did it. I shot them. Oh my God, I shot them. I killed my parents. Why did I do it? I love them. They mean everything to me and I killed them. Oh my God, end quote. So Lisa now gives a different um, story as to what happened. And there will be different ideas that are kind of repeated through most articles that you can read on, on this. She basically implies that she snapped, that something just kind of came over her and she felt she needed to kill her parents. And she also says she was tired of being afraid and that she had been abused. I'm using a little bit of paraphrasing, but basically you'll see these themes 
throughout a defense or any defense arguments. She said she had had this feeling on March 29th and decided to walk into her parents' room and kill them. She shot Larry twice and she shot Laura twice with two shots going into the wall. Now, there were a lot of discrepancies throughout the articles as to how many shots were fired or how many times each person was hit. But near the end of the proceedings, um, most of the articles did come out with saying each victim was shot twice. There's also the discrepancy as to whether or not they were awake or asleep, which I alluded to earlier. Um, From some of the things that Lisa said, I think they were probably asleep. When asked if she knew if Larry and Laura knew who had shot them, she said that she thought Larry might have known Um, He was the first who had been shot, but when Laura woke up, she took her blanket and put it over her head quickly. So Lisa thought, you know, it was possible that Laura didn't know who shot her. And I really think that might have been a blessing because, you know, looking at your child standing there with a gun ready to shoot you, as scared as you are in those last moments, knowing that there's someone in your room with a gun, It would have been so much worse, I think, knowing it was your own child. Now, I was also surprised with the bond that Lisa was given and the fact that she was actually given bond. Um, It was set at $500,000. And, you know, looking at it, it does seem a little bit low. But remember, too, this was 1994. So even though $500,000 now is still a good chunk of money, Back then, it was even more. The judge did see her as a flight risk. You know, she had been found in Ocean City. And, you know, granted, that was not a huge distance away. But considering also the gravity of the crime, he did think she could be a danger and a flight risk. Something that Lisa did say um, made me wonder if she really understood the consequences of her actions And really made me take a step back and think not only of her, but any juvenile who has committed such a crime. If they truly understand what they did and what it means. She indicated to the judge that she would like a bond to be able to get out of jail so that she could finish high school, start college, and then also maybe get a job. So... To me, that's incredibly naive that after admitting to shooting two people that you would then just think that someone is going to say, okay, yeah, we will let you out on a low bond so you can go be around a lot of other children your age that, you know, eventually you can go off to possibly college and also work amongst the public. So that's why I think that's a little naive as well as possibly not even understanding the full extent of what she had done. You know, not only would it be from a judge's viewpoint, possibly dangerous to the community at large to, you know, allow someone who's admitted to this, you know, around other people, but the schools themselves, whether it be the high school or the college, we'd really have to think, would they allow a student who is, you know, who is facing this type of trial 
and who has admitted to the killings, would they allow them on campus? As well as, you know, working, would somebody recognize her and not feel especially safe about, you know, going into that establishment? That would then, of course, make the owner or the manager really very leery about hiring her. But this does also lead to another concern that I think would not be allowed today either. When she made that first appearance to the judge, she was alone. She didn't have a public defender. She didn't have any help. Um, A parent wasn't standing up, up with her. Literally, there was no one there to help a 16-year-old appearing before a judge for the first time. And again here, I think I would feel the same way whether or not it was someone I knew or didn't know appearing before a judge, if for nothing more than making sure that anything she said or did would still be allowed at trial if they went to trial because you don't want someone to come in, um, like a defense attorney arguing that her rights were violated and a judge agreeing with them. And I see in both cases of the interview with the police officer, as well as, you know, this first appearance before the judge, it could very well, in my opinion, have turned out that way. The judge um, there, his name was Judge Brown, did advise her that he thought it would be best if she didn't really say that much at the hearing. You know, so it did sound like he was, given the circumstances, at least trying to protect her to a certain extent. He did ask her about having an attorney, and she had applied to get a public defender at that time. Um, She was then sent to be held at the Caroline County Detention Center, because where she was at in the barracks, you know, Berlin is in a different county than where the crimes took place. Later also, Lisa would say that she was shocked at the charges that were being laid against her because of Bollinger saying that he would help her. She didn't expect the charges to be as they were, and the charges were two counts of each of the following, Um, first-degree murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter, using a handgun during the commission of a crime, and felony murder. Um, Just to kind of clarify felony murder, it's when someone commits a crime while in the process of doing, and while in the process of doing that crime, someone dies. You can even sometimes see it when The person being charged with felony murder isn't actually the one who pulled the trigger or stabbed someone, whatever the case may be. Um, Most of the time it's used when um, theft and burglary were the, the felonies that it began with, but in that process of committing that felony, someone dies. And it could even be the person's co-conspirator in the crime that's killed, and that will still be considered felony murder. So looking at this particular case, theft was thought to possibly have been a reason for the murder. Murders, I should say. She was assigned a defense attorney um, whose name was W. Porter Ellington. 
Also, the Montgomery County Public Defender's Office did send help as well. There was only one full-time public defender at that time in Caroline County, so really there were limited options. There were um, part-time defenders, and one of them was actually assigned to the case of John Phelps, who was the juvenile male that I keep talking about. You know, so of course, Alexander Burt, who was the one who was assigned to John Phelps, um, he couldn't defend Lisa because there was always the possibility of someone testifying against the other and a conflict of interest. So Maureen Essex was one who did a lot of the arguing on behalf of Lisa and filing a lot of the motions that I could see. And she was from the Montgomery County's Public Defender's Office. So they did kind of take a larger role in the defense, which there's probably a lot more cases in Montgomery County. You know, I'm not saying excessively, but still more cases over there that would involve possibly the death penalty, which leads me to that. And that there was some disagreement as to whether or not the death penalty would be allowed or if it was a possibility that Lisa could get the death penalty. Under just state statutes, not looking at a federal level, one person was saying, and this was someone named Donna Shearer, that as a person was under 17 at the time in the state of Maryland, the death penalty would have not been an option. And Lisa was 16 when the murders took place. Um, she was noted as being from the public defender's office. And so I'm not sure if that was specifically Montgomery County or Caroline County, but it was a defense attorney. Whereas Christian Jensen, who was the state's attorney with the state's attorney general or prosecutor um, in the role that he would be you know, filling, he kind of looked at it more liberally and you know, the statute and said, you know, it might be a possibility. I do just want to give a quick, I guess you say, overview of punishments for crimes committed by juveniles. Um, instead of going through each individual um, case where changes were made, I'm just going to kind of give a broad, um, I guess you say, broad strokes with the changes in the laws. Um, at the time that Lisa had committed the crime and was going towards trial, the death penalty and life without parole were options more on a on like a federal basis, but each state also could have limitations. So, you know, as I was saying, there seemed to be some disagreement about the whole 17 year of age thing. Um, but it was decided with Supreme Court rulings that first, the death penalty could not be in, allowed on juveniles. Um, secondly, with a later ruling that a juvenile could not be sentenced to life without parole unless the crime was homicide. While later, um, it was the actual life without parole or possibility of parole was banned for juveniles. 
now. I'm saying without the possibility of parole, at least, um, because, you know, of course, if the crimes are extremely heinous and the person shows no signs of remorse, even if they are allowed parole, they might be able to go or they might go before the board and that parole board decides no. They are not ready. They deem or they are deemed a threat to society. So at least the late or one of the rulings, the later rulings gave at least that possibility for them to go before the parole board. Then each state could apply their own rules, whether or not there were minimums, um, you know, what specifically the number of years, um, how they would serve the time, like whether it was all in a juvenile facility and things like that. Um, but that's just kind of a broad overview about the punishments. Now, even though there was a confession, um, there seemed to be some evidence in the fact that she had left the area and, you know, had her mother's checkbook, things like that, the police are still going to use their due diligence. Um, even, you know, in cases where, you know, there are other confessions, you will always see that police, I should say, you should always see that police are still following up on all leads so that they don't close the door on any possibility. So in interviewing people, they did find that some students on the bus that she normally rode indicated that they had heard Lisa discussing with other students that she wanted to kill her parents, some even stating she had said it to them. Um, this was heard even the last day before the murders um, and the last time she was seen at school. So even within that time frame, the 28th and the 29th, she was heard saying she wanted to kill her parents. Now, some of her friends indicated that Lisa's mother, Laura, was abusive. Um, one of her friends recalled a time, and this friend wanted to stay anonymous, um, that Lisa had called begging to spend the night at that friend's house. Um, Lisa did come over to spend the night, but this friend reported that Laura had come over and even slapped this friend's mother on the shoulder and blamed the mother of the friend for Lisa running away. We also do want to make sure that we understand that neither Laura nor Larry are here to defend themselves either. Um, we have to kind of take a step back and wonder, was this really happening or was she trying to you know, set up this, I guess you'd say, excuse for murder. So we really don't know as nothing further was brought to light regarding this. But Lisa did have two groups of friends that knew her, her school friends and then her work friends. She had worked at McDonald's and there was some varying opinion on whether or not Laura and or Larry had been abusive to her. Um, friends at school said they would see unexplained bruises on her legs, um, on her face. And this is where I would really like to be able to know what possibly any of her past medical records say, because one friend described very graphic and obvious injuries, saying that she had a black eye, broken jaw, and bruises on her face. 
And this was direct information taken from an article with a quote from this friend. So, you know, were there medical records that said that she had a broken jaw? Because if it truly was a broken jaw while being no medical expert, I would think that, you know, she, she would have had to have seen a doctor. For one thing, she may not have been able to eat properly with having a broken jaw. On the other side of things, friends that worked with her at the McDonald's described um, seeing her at times in a tank top and shorts. So I'm thinking possibly, um, you know, coming into change before or after her shift. But given what she was wearing and the person given the, the description wasn't necessarily saying anything against her attire, but what this person was saying is if there were any bruises, they were not visible. And given the fact that um, a larger portion of her skin would have been showing during those summer months with wearing a tank top and shorts, this person didn't see how she could have been abused and nobody see it. So it's really difficult to tell because you have people on you know, both sides saying either she was or was not. But the extents of, you know, one group of injuries, the one with the broken jaw and black eye, I really think that would be hard to get around that if she had gone to school with that, a teacher at least should have said something and there should have been some remarks or testimony given by them. But if it did happen in the summer, there would be new teachers, but hopefully a manager or someone higher up in her work would have made those observations too and tried to do something. So we don't know, and we probably won't ever know for sure unless some of the medical information, you know, is allowed to, to be made public. And since she was a minor at the time, that limits that possibility as well as HIPAA laws, um, you know, that no one else can really, um, you know, give out the information if they're a medical professional without her okay or a warrant. We'll never know. Um, so that's just kind of something to ponder. Again, remembering that Laura and Larry cannot defend themselves and just, you know, trying to look at the information provided, we'll have to decide for ourselves which one is more plausible. Anna, Larry's mother, did actually spend a lot of time with Laura and indicated that, you know, she had never seen any signs of bruising or abuse. She did mention that Laura and Larry were having some trouble with Lisa between skipping school and just arguments, but she didn't really see it as anything other than the typical, you know, teenager parent struggles that most people deal with when they have a teenager. I'm going through it myself, but actually with my preteen. You know, so we have struggles as our kids grow. And according to Anna, it was nothing more than typical. However, these are some quotes that Anna gave. And, you know, along with these descriptions, I have to say that, you know, I can't really agree 100% with what she's saying. Um, I'm not saying that it didn't happen the way she said, but 
for her to say there was no signs of any type of abuse. Uh, you'll have to decide for yourselves as well. So again, Anna never noted any bruises or anything like that. But here is a quote that she gave that was listed in a news article. She said, quote, I know he didn't abuse her because he thought too much of her. Larry told me that they were watching Lisa like a hawk and that she's too dumb to know it. Laura may have pulled her hair, I think. She may have been scared of her mother because she made her mind, end quote. So first point I'm going to make there, when she said her mother made her mind, what that means is obey. Um, I don't think it necessarily, you know, kind of rolls off the tongue, but, you know, that's what she was meaning by saying made her mind. Um, also, then going back to the actual substance of what she said, the first thing that hit me was, you know, Larry said she was too dumb to know it. If, if any person ever hears that, especially as a child growing up, that they are too dumb, I mean, how does that make a person feel? Does it automatically lead to murder? No, and it shouldn't. But to dismiss that possibly things like that were not said around Lisa growing up would kind of be a disservice as well. He said this to, to his mother, though, so maybe he thought it wouldn't go any further. But, you know, we don't know what was said in the house. As far as pulling her hair, saying that Laura pulled her hair, it's like, okay, how often was that? Was it like a hard tug? like really hard to cause pain or was it like they were playing around and, you know, mother just kind of tugged at her hair, like, you know, look, you're growing up so fast or, you know, Hey, have, you know, maybe it's time for a haircut, things like that. You know, it, I can't really think of all the scenarios. I can think of maybe just some playful tugging at the hair, um, making a comment about it, you know, not, totally agreeing with it, but I can see that. Or was it pulled harder and was it done with intent to cause pain? We don't know again. Um, but these were actual um, words that Larry's mother said. This was a quote. Um, but here, I want to start addressing the gun. So there were a few important things regarding this. Lisa describes that something just came over her on March 29th to kill them. However, she actually retrieved the gun from her parents' room the night before. They kept a gun under the bed in a gun box or gun locker for protection. Larry had actually taught Lisa to shoot a gun, and he had other guns in the house that were in a gun cabinet as well as ammunition. Now, I'm not sure if there was a gun, or I'm sorry, a key to the gun cabinet, but, you know, they do come with keys. I don't know what access she would have had, but without knowing some of that information, I almost wonder if she took the gun from under the bed so that, you know, the parents wouldn't have protection. That if she went in there with another um, weapon, whether it be any of the other guns or a knife, would she be concerned that Laura or Larry could get to the gun 
you know, so, you know, since there are two people, one might be able to reach underneath there and get the gun. Um, you know, it, it's just a thought. It's an observation that I'm making. You know, the other, you know, why this is mentioned is, you know, the police officers were looking at it as, you know, okay, it took forethought to go into the room the night before and take the gun. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, there was premeditation there because she got the gun. She might be saying that something just came over her, you know, on the 29th, but the previous day she had already had the gun in her possession at some point during that day and had even told um, Bollinger that she had tried to go in there three times, but on March 28th, but didn't succeed. Um, you know, her parents were still up. Because of that statement, I kind of wonder if she did wait for them to be asleep. So with that back and forth as to whether or not they were awake or asleep, given that I think they were probably asleep. Um, during one of the times, Lisa did say she actually ran into her mother. Um, that was on the 28th when she had the gun with her. Um, so she, I would think Laura did not see that in her hands. Otherwise, there would have been some really serious questioning, I think, about why she had it. I did, though, want to mention about the gun cabinet possibly having a key. Um, you know, since I don't know that, it could be just as feasible that, you know, she would have used the gun under Laura and Larry's bed no matter what because she didn't have access to the gun cabinet and the only other way to get into it would have been breaking the, the glass or the lock, which would, of course, caused them to wake up. And she couldn't have done it earlier in the day because they would have noticed it before she went to bed. I do want to show, show both sides, possibly, of what she could have been thinking. Um, it could be a third possibility that I'm not even thinking of. So again, just kind of my thoughts on that. Also, um, the defense did raise um, the issue saying it was not premeditated. However, no matter how you look at it, I think that having a gun in your possession just one night prior to them actually being killed does really say there was premeditation. Um, I don't think there's any way around it, but you know that's, of course, the defense's job is to make sure that they do the best for their client and, you know, set forth any possible defense that they can come up with. Leading back or going back to Phelps, John Phelps, when he was first charged, he was charged with, with accessory after the fact, and he was released on his own recognizance. I'm talking about him in regards to the gun because personally, I think this guy was a little scary at the time, period. Prior to the events of March 29th, 1994, in 1992, he had, admit, had admitted to committing five burglaries in the Harmony, Maryland area. Additionally, um, a couple of months later, he also stole a whole display set of knives. You know, so he was you know, really working his way um, up the ladder, I guess you'd say, because yes, you commit burglaries. That's bad enough in itself as 
It can cause property damage as well as make the homeowners feel less safe in their own home when things like that happen. Now, with the knives, he escalated to things that could be used as weapons. However, he was still released on his own recognizance into the custody of his parents after the initial charging. However, Lisa had given him the gun. And uh, just to clarify here too, he was never specifically said to be the boyfriend. So I can't say 100% he was, but there are a lot of things that lead me to that conclusion. Um, but when Lisa gave him the gun, he actually ground off the serial number. Now, to take a step back in time, yes, there were shows like Law & Order on, Unsolved Mysteries, but there wasn't this overwhelming influx of things that you could find on the internet because the internet wasn't there. True crime as a genre in television was not huge. There was no such thing as YouTube. So he still had the presence of mind at 16 to grind off a serial number of a weapon. He had done so because he wanted to keep the weapon, but I'm pretty sure he didn't want it traced back to a murder victim. That makes sense, but still scary for the time period that at 16 he would know it. And at this point, I'm going to delve into some of his actions a little bit more. So after being released on his own recognizance, and you know, during the subsequent interviews with schoolmates and everything, it was you know, found that Lisa had discussed killing her parents with him. And at one point, he even advised her not to do it herself, but to hire a hitman. So again, thinking he's a pretty scary guy here. Hopefully he's changed. I really do sincerely hope so. But, you know, that's a lot to take in that the 16-year-old boy is already knowing that and doing that type of thing. Even more so, when, you know, the police had been called to Lisa's house, you know, Lisa wasn't there, but it was very obvious that something was going on because of the police presence and also news trucks, Phelps came over to the area. He spoke to people at the scene. To many people, he seemed genuinely surprised about what happened. And, you know, though we don't know his exact words, we can only kind of conjecture that he was like, oh my gosh, um, I'm so worried about Lisa. Did something happen to her? But he actually said to a television reporter that he had spoken previously with Lisa about killing her parents. This is a don't say anything without talking to a lawyer moment. Seriously, he actually admitted to a reporter. So probably any of that, those thoughts I had earlier about whether or not the police saw Lisa as a suspect or not, she probably rose in the ranks of being a suspect quite significantly once police heard this, I'm sure. Now... After finding this out, 
His charges were then increased to accessory before the fact. And given the severity of the crime, again, going back to the statutes of that day, he could have also faced, you know, life in jail without parole, as well as possibly even the death penalty, which again, there's the argument about he was only 16, not 17. And it was not directly a murder. He wasn't involved in the actual perpetration of the murder, but didn't do anything to stop it either. But we know all of those rules and statutes changed anyway, so it's kind of a moot point then. It still, though, could have been a factor in how he perceived his next steps and what he should do in regards to testimony because, of course, he's going to do whatever he can to protect himself which honestly should have been don't say anything anyway. It was then that his bond changed from him being released to on his own recognizance to his parents to a $25,000 fully secured bond. The same Judge Brown that had previously spoken with Lisa on her first appearance also had Phelps brought before him. And this is what he said, quote, what we've got is a young man who is, at least on the surface, progressing his way through the justice system until he's trying to run with the big dogs. The same people who have been supervising him all along or supervising him now, it appears to me that there is a supreme risk that he is going to show up for trial because he has no reason to do so, period. So just to summarize, the judge thought, you know, the the parents were the ones we released him to, and they haven't done a great job to this point. So, yeah, I'm putting a bond on this. Frankly, though, for me, 25000 was quite low. And you may have your own opinions on this as we get closer to the end of events as far as what his actual punishment was. The school district itself, um, you know, teachers, principals, they all received requests for, you know, statements. For the most part, they were directed back to the, you know, superintendent of the school district. Um, one teacher did make a statement where, you know, he said he was surprised at what Lisa had done, but described her in ways that I would imagine he kind of saw her as a student in the middle. She was described as, you know, being a good student, but she wasn't ambitious. So she kind of flew under the radar. She wasn't, you know, doing spectacularly in all of her classes or anything like that. But at the same time, she didn't really cause any trouble. But there was concern about schooling, too. Um, because she was 16, she still had a right to an education. And the superintendent or the school district did release a statement where, you know, they did say they would offer assistance if needed or requested by the county. But there was also discussion of her being sent to a detention center by the name of the Carter Youth Center in Chestertown, Maryland. That was in a different county, but it was, you know, geared towards juveniles um, and had things like a GED type program, at least so that she could continue her education. I think this is where I'm going to end it for today. Um, and really with as much as there is to go over, it may even lead into a three 
part episode. I hope not, but there are a lot of events that took place and then just some observations I made looking at articles that surrounded hers. You know, so when looking at the page of a newspaper, there would be another article on the same page that really made me question some things. And later we'll actually see a judge talking about the same thing. Later, there were subsequent letters to the editors of um, different newspapers, too. So a lot to discuss coming up. Um, Something that I did just want to mention, and I just thought of it, one of the main sources that I mentioned before was the Star Democrat. I do want to make it clear that, yes, though the name of a political party is in the name of it, that's not what it means. It's always been known as the Star Democrat. And the re- the way I look at it is it's talking about the democratic way of life, you know, things like that. Not actually that it's a paper run by Democrats. I want to make that clear just so no one gets an idea that the paper may be slanted towards one affiliation, conservative or liberal, in one way or another. It's not. It's the name of a newspaper, and it means the type of, I guess you say, legal system we have um, in that we are democratic. I thank you all for hanging in there with me. These will, like I said, these are some long episodes. And I appreciate also the fact you let me kind of delve into the past a little bit and explain and give some observations that even though we were only, you know, five, six, seven years old, and my memories are more clouded in some ways, you know, not exactly specific other than a few specific incidents. You know, to repeat, I will always just see her as a little girl playing with me as a little girl. And it's hard to really accept the fact that she did that to anybody, but much less her mother. I I can still see her mother standing at the door when she would pick her up from my house. I still see her car, even though I'm not good at makes or models, but I can remember looking at it. And it's it's just really odd to think about her in terms of like that, even though we're almost 30 years on. Um, it's just, like I said, difficult. Um, so thank you again. I will get the next episode updated as soon as I can. I don't usually wait the full two weeks or longer um, before uploading it because you know I do want to get the story told and out there. Um, it's just I literally had more pages of notes on this one than I've had on any others that I've ever had. Um, so I hope everybody does have a great weekend or week, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, And also I have noticed that at least in my last episode, I did have an increase in listeners. So I really, really appreciate that. Word of mouth is usually the, you know, the best way to, to support a podcast because when people search for key terms, there's this algorithm don't know all the, um, you know, the way those work, but the more listens, the more likes, the more comments, 
it kind of moves it up um, higher in the algorithm. So, you know, if you like this type of content and you think others may enjoy it, let them know. So, you know, the more the, the listeners downloads, the more they increase, the more people will hear it because it'll be higher in the algorithm. All right. All of my contact information will be in the description if you would like to suggest any cases or anything like that. And I will talk to everybody soon. And again, have a great weekend or week. Bye-bye.